Welcome to The Crux. Each week, two of the world's top communicators take you behind the scenes of the news of the day to explore the crux of communications that are shaping business, politics, and our daily lives. Hi, this is Gary Sheffer. And hi, I'm Mike Fernandez, and we're glad to be with you from Boston University. Welcome to the crux of the story. I'm Mike Fernandez, and I'm joined by my co-host, Gary Sheffer. Gary, how are you doing this morning? Great, Mike. Uh, great to hear from you. Yeah, great to hear from you, too. We, we have a terrific guest in Andrew Winston, who is a strategic advisor to large companies about how they can both manage and profit from the social and environmental challenges that today are reshaping the political and economic landscape. He's also the co-author of a brand new book with former Unilever CEO Paul Pullman entitled Net Positive, How Courageous Companies Thrive by Giving More Than They Take. I'm really keen to learn more about the book. But before we get to Andrew, let's talk about a few items in the news. Gary, first of all, I hope you didn't have a flight on Southwest <laughs> Airlines this past weekend. Yeah. You know, and and I've, and it, the numbers have been ratcheting up. Uh, the last count I saw is that more than 2,000 Southwest flights were actually canceled over the weekend. On Sunday, the company issued a statement. It read, we experienced weather challenges in our Florida airports at the beginning of the weekend, challenges that were compounded by unexpected air traffic control issues in the same region, triggering delays and prompting significant cancellations. Sounds like a, a good rationale, but what's suspicious about this statement is that weather and air traffic control issues seemingly didn't impact any other airlines. Mm -hmm. The airline with the second most cancellations was American Airlines over the weekend with fewer than 70 cancellations, nowhere near that 2000 that Southwest had. And the Federal Aviation Authority said it had some issues with one traffic control center on Friday, but those issues were quickly resolved. As a consequence, a number of journalists are pointing to another possible cause. On Friday, the pilots union representing Southwest Airlines pilots filed a brief with the U.S. District Court in the Northern District, which is in Dallas, Texas. The union in that document stated that the a vaccine mandate, the, the COVID vaccine mandate, unlawfully, that, that now Southwest Airlines is trying to impose, unlawfully imposes new conditions of employment on pilots and asks the court to stop the airline from enacting that requirement. So, Gary, what I want to know is what's going on here, you know, and, and also should the company have come clean on perhaps this other underlying reason. And even if there were weather concerns and air traffic control issues, shouldn't Southwest Airlines have been clearer about how these challenges impacted them more or differently than their competitors? Yeah, Mike, I, I would say the answer is to that last question, yes, Southwest should have been more clear. But it's a big but here. You know, weather is geographic. I mean, it is, you know, and so is yeah. Southwest. So it's entirely possible that the weather impacted them more. But I know than... the other big carriers, Delta, American Airlines, mm -hmm. they all have a significant number of flights in Florida. Yeah. So I, so I don't know the reason. So yes, be clear. And we know the folks at Southwest yep. and they're a good communications team. But the answer there is yes. Now, 
Having said that, this whole idea that the pilots union was on a sick out, as some people have claimed, appears to be totally untrue. The source being the pilots union themselves saying we, we didn't stage a sick out and that absentee levels were the same as normal. So some facts to challenge this alternative explanation that got some traction. Even in the New York Times. Right. So, Mike, I, you know, look, who do you trust more? I come down to (laughs) Southwest Airlines or Ted Cruz. And and I trust Southwest Airlines because they have a record of being straight shooters and of treating people well, not only their passengers, but their people. And so I tend to to believe them more than I do some of the this, now, uh, now it's another interesting aspect of this, I think, and, and we've both been there, is it's always curious to me how these stories develop seemingly over weekends or, or, or late in the day on Friday. And what I can't imagine, I could imagine that, you know, that there were these issues on Friday and someone just made a management call and kind of said, you know, we think that this it yeah. looks like it's going to continue to impact and let's just call it now. And then nobody, because it was a weekend, revisited it in the same way. Yeah. And then similarly with news organizations, news organizations see this and, and it's, you know, it's tough. But I think a lot of us who've operated as chief communications officers or, or corporate communications people, you know, I think there's a real signal that we all need to think about that we're always on. It's yes. 24 by seven. And it's, you know, it, it, it's like, I know that, you know, you had a global organization. I had a global organization. We even had to think about, you know, what kind of handoffs would we have on significant issues, you know, as the world turned. Yeah. We used to talk about following the sun. Yeah. Like, right. You know, we had to be, but on, on this particularly too, you know, it's a hard decision sometimes for companies to your point, is do I respond to these alternative scenarios that are presented? Do I give them more fuel than they deserve? Is that a pun? Uh, yeah, that's true. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know it at the time, Mike, but now I do. Anyway, uh, I think particularly over the weekend where what's the easiest scenario for a reporter to write who's working the weekend, of course, is to play the political angle. Yeah. Possible. And some did fueled by, again, some of these politicians. By the way, what I, I learned one of my new favorite words. It's called wish casting, where you broadcast something, Mike, that you wish were true. And that was apparently the case here with some of the conservative media trying to blame ah, this on okay. vaccine mandates. So wish casting is now in my vocabulary. All right. All right. Well, it, 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 talking about wish casting and talking about information online, you know, last week we talked a little bit about uh, Facebook's problems. And, and now in the, in, the, in the shadows of Facebook's problems, including you know, the whistleblower uh, that had said that the company was seeking to make money off of misinformation, I, I found it interesting that there were two social media organizations in the last week that took steps to blunt misinformation on their platforms and also kind of ballyhooed them during the week. I mean, Google announced in a, in a blog post that content that contradicts well-established scientific consensus 
around the existence and causes of climate change will be prohibited from its platform. And this ban will also apply to the Google-owned platform, YouTube. And digital ads will no longer appear next to online content that denies climate change, aiming to cut off a major source of income for disseminators of misinformation in that space. And then on Thursday, Snapchat announced that it was launching an in-app. So it's inside their Snapchat app, a tool called Heads Up, essentially to deter young users from buying fentanyl-laced counterfeit pills. Apparently, drug dealers are on Snapchat (laughs) too and selling illicit drugs. As Snapchat users enter certain drug-related words, content from substance abuse and mental health experts will pop up as a result of this tool. Now, Snapchat also has launched a video and and an ad campaign to raise awareness about the issue to its users. Gary, I'm sure there will be some politicians and climate deniers that will grouse about Google's actions, and I'm sure there will be some Snapchat users that will complain that the in-app tool is more than a little invasive. How do you think about these efforts as communications tools? Should we be giving these efforts a thumbs up or a thumbs down? Well, it's I have mixed feelings. You know, <laughs> there's the libertarian sort of streak in me that says, let, you know, the buyer make their own decisions, consumers, you know, buyer beware. But look, these are private companies. Mm-hmm. You know, they're they're not publicly owned in some ways, like the airwaves in, in broadcasting, right. right, have been. And so how are these, you know, I thought about that. And how are these different than the PSAs that, you know, my generation, your generation saw on television for many years about issues like drug abuse and, and that kind of thing. By the way, it's amazing to me that you can buy drugs on Snapchat. I mean, it's just like, it's a world I don't know. But broadcast platforms have been refusing ads Mm -hmm. because they're offensive or incorrect forever, right? For many years. Now, that has been determined to be a public property. The airwaves are public domain. So I applaud these kinds of things because I think we're in a real crisis of mis- and disinformation. And certainly, if it prohibits people from harming themselves with something like fentanyl, I, I applaud it. But Mike, doesn't it seem like we're moving, we have to move toward more regulation of these platforms? Even even Facebook is promoting that given all their recent troubles and had been before that. But that may be the only way where we can have consensus around these kinds of rules. Yeah, I, I think probably there will be more regulation, whether it turns out to be useful or not in this space. I think that the companies are attempting to show that they can regulate themselves, I believe. Yeah, exactly. And sometimes that sends an invitation to the regulators. Sometimes regulators look at it and applaud. I think these are very, very complicated issues. I think that much like some of the advertising while we were growing up, mm-hmm. some of it, maybe this in-app, you know, it doesn't work, (laughs) you know, like those, some of those ads didn't stop people from, you know, smoking weed or, or, or trying pills. But all of that said, I mean, what, what these two companies, and I'm sure that's what they were thinking that they can point to, you know, look, we're taking, we're trying to take some positive steps so that our channel, our, you know, our, our social media posting 
is not injuring others. So hats off to them for at least thinking in that way. Exactly. But I do think it's a, as you said, it's it, it's a difficult call as a communicator that there is a tendency to think that, you know, everybody should just have First Amendment rights and we shouldn't be too invasive and things will sort themselves out in a in, in free discussion, but it gets a little bit more difficult when we're dealing with young people as well. So anyway, shifting gears, much was made back in 2020 when Tesla CEO Elon Musk personally moved from the state of California to the state of Texas. It was thought to be motivated by the fact that Texas does not collect state income or capital gains taxes from individuals. And Elon Musk is one of the most, is, is one of the wealthiest people on the planet. The um, wealthiest, I think, right now, Mike. Yeah, new announcement, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, but it did follow some sparring between Musk and California Governor Newsom over a coronavirus shelter-in-place order that actually shut down a Tesla factory in California. Mm-hmm. And, and, and that gave people a sense that, well, maybe there's more to this story to come. Well, at Tesla's annual shareholder meeting this past week, Musk made it official Tesla's headquarters will move from Palo Alto, California to Austin, Texas. Now, other tech companies in the last year, including Oracle and Hewlett Packard Enterprises, have made similar moves in shifting their operations to Texas. But Musk was clear in his announcement this past week. He said, this is not a matter of Tesla leaving California and made the point that Tesla will continue to operate its electric vehicle factory in California. But he also made the point that Silicon Valley living costs and the ability to recruit talent were key reasons for shifting the headquarters to Texas. Now, Musk afterwards on Twitter, there's another sort of sidelight here, (laughs) seemingly validated a Tesla fan's comment that the move was in part influenced by a 2020 tweet from a California assemblywoman, Lorena Gonzalez, when it was speculated that Musk might move his company to Texas last year, the assemblywoman tweeted F, and I'll go dot, dot, K, uh, Elon Musk. She has since said that she could have expressed herself in a less aggressive way. But Gary, you've dealt with company headquarters and operational moves in the past. I have as well. Some of these situations become bidding wars, like what we saw a few years ago with Amazon, where they were looking for a place for a U.S. operations headquarters. And even states were offering up all kinds of incentives. They even went through almost like the baseball playoff series, you know, and had a little (laughs) bit of a bake-off and announced, you know, well, in the next round, we just were down to these six cities and so on. And it gave fodder for even anti-Amazon activists to protest against the company. But what are some lessons learned or best practices for companies to follow as they study and pursue potential venue change, whether for major operations or for corporate headquarters. I remember when GE moved its headquarters famously from Connecticut to Boston. Yep. What, what if any lessons do you have for it? Oh, I, I love this topic, Mike, because there are lots of lessons in all of this. If you, I, I Last year in my public affairs class at BU, Boston University talked about the Amazon bake-off as a you know wrong-footed public affairs activity. When you have these beauty contests and you make one city, or in this case, two cities happy, and you make another hundred unhappy, right? The losing cities who put a lot of effort into their bids and that kind of thing. And they ended up Amazon in, 
in Queens and outside of Washington and places you could have predicted from the start they might locate. So it didn't look like a real contest. So no beauty contests. Always take a hard look at incentives, Mike, particularly mm-hmm. tax breaks. Yeah. Because reputationally, they're really difficult and sometimes hard to meet. Economies change, business conditions change, and then you're stuck paying penalties for not meeting hiring or jobs numbers. So uh, I was always in favor of turn down. Let's just Mm -hmm. turn down the tax breaks. It's not worth it reputationally Mm -hmm. over the long run, particularly for a big company like, like the one I worked for. And then lastly, and most importantly, I would just say people disruption is huge. When you move these headquarters now today, really, Mike, what is a headquarters right in this flexible work environment that we're in? So I don't really know how many people this involves, but the disruption is huge. And we talk about community a lot. And that's real. You know, people we we talk about community in, in the broader sense, but local communities are important to your people. And how many people at the HQ in California want to move to Texas, given the politics of that state right now? One consideration. Right. 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 So so those are some of the things I think about yeah, when, here, I, think when I hear these things. Yeah, there are lots of trade-offs, right? I mean, we we saw in the last two decades a lot of exodus from smaller towns to larger yeah. regional hubs. You know, a company I worked for, when I worked for them, they were ConAgra Foods, and later now they're called ConAgra Brands. They shifted their headquarters from Omaha, Nebraska to Chicago. And on one level, you can understand the desire to be, you know, closer to a bigger city where prospectively maybe there's a larger talent pool. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's easier to recruit people to. But the impact that that change had and maybe some of the bitterness that it created in a place like Omaha was something that I think, you know, there probably needed to be a more thoughtful approach and how do you, how do you counterbalance yeah. those kinds of choices? So it's difficult. And, um, and I would say, Mike, too, you know, having said all of that, California and Governor Newsom, Newsom should take a hard look at business conditions in that state. You know, right. d- taking a look at it from a business point of view, where housing is just costs are just through the roof, right? The complexity well, and, 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 of and regulation. I, yeah, and as I understand it, in in the GE situation too, I mean, sort of underlying taxes for the company as well yeah. as for housing and taxes for employees were big issues. Because in where they were in Connecticut, I mean, housing prices were through the roof. It was one of the most expensive places to live in in the United States. And then the the tax situation on large companies was also an issue. And in some ways, it's kind of ironic because going further back in time, you know, Massachusetts by some used to be called Taxachusetts. (laughs) And but, you know, they had kind of realigned their incentive structure. And I believe where GE actually moved was in a part of Boston that they were looking to reignite economically. Exactly. And the ability to recruit and retain people in a place With like Boston. With all those universities yeah, clustered totally. around Boston. So. And I'll give you one more on this one, Mike. I, I did read it. This reminds me that Smith & Wesson, uh-huh. I don't know if you read this, the gun company, yeah. is moving its operations, its headquarters from... Springfield, Mass, to Tennessee. And it was very upfront about the anti-gun mm-hmm. politics of Massachusetts. Mm-hmm. You know, so while, and, and Tennessee's, you know, 
pro-gun regulation. And so, I, I, you know, while I don't know more details than that, at least with Smith and Wesson, they were honest about why they were making them exactly, better, right? exactly, yeah. and, and that's a real big deal because I think some companies are less than candid about exactly. what they're really looking for. Yeah. And in fact, that's what sometimes causes a lot of these state governments and local governments to fall right. all over each other, because everybody would love to have, you know, a large corporate headquarters or a large, you know, manufacturing operation that's going to employ a thousand people. But sometimes the company in question has very, very specific needs that they're looking for. And they're even less than honest with state governments and local governments exactly. about what they're actually looking for. Anyway, as a last item here, you know, we talked a little bit about Elon Musk, but on Twitter, just this past Sunday, October 10th, Amazon CEO Jeff Bezos shared an image of a 1999 <laughs> Barron's cover story that had severely criticized Bezos and the idea of Amazon and basically said, it's going to bomb. Yep. And, 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 and so he was sharing this picture and he made the comment. He said, listen and be open, but don't let anybody tell you who you are. Pretty inspiring words, right? Mm -hmm. Well, mm -hmm. one of the people to post a direct comment to Bezos's tweet was none other than Elon Musk who tweeted the image of a second place medal. <laughs> you know, it was like a little silver medal and it had the number two <laughs> on it. And, 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 and to fill in the gap here, two weeks prior, Forbes had reported that Elon Musk had eclipsed Jeff Bezos as the world's wealthiest person. Gary, what should we make of this? Does this tell us anything about these two guys or the companies they lead? And should Bezos be upset? Well, you know, I love this kind of bravado. I mean, I do. I mean, it's kind of fun. And, yeah. you know, Tesla, the company has a lot of bravado and, and have done amazing things. So it's but true I, to character? It's true to character, exactly. I would say, by the way, that the Bezos tweet about listen and be open and don't let anybody tell you who you are, was in response to a whistleblower, a group of whistleblowers, about 2022 people that had said there was a toxic work culture uh, at Blue at Blue Origin, uh, the space. So even know, though Blue Origin wasn't mentioned in the tweet, exactly he's playing against that. He's playing against that. There was a big Washington Post story that day about the toxic work culture at Blue Origin, owned, of course, by Bezos. And so it, that was the context for it. So. Uh, and Musk took it in a different direction. And Musk took it in a different direction. So I would just say, you know, Bezos ought to pay attention to the facts about Blue Origin. And, and so this is sort of like the Red Sox-Yankees, right? Yeah, yeah, please don't mention that. But I want to say one more. <laughs> we'll talk about it in a minute. But Musk, I love the bravado. But one thing I would say about Musk is competition is coming. <laughs> you know, there's a lot of people out there making a lot of what look like good electric vehicles. And, and so I know they make a lot of money through other services other than selling electric vehicles, but I would keep my eyes on the prize too, if I were Elon Musk. Who am I to criticize the Mike, the wealthiest person in the world? You know, it's not even close, but I think for both of these guys, there will come a point when this kind of measuring contest, <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, 
when you're on top, it's easy to to have this kind of fun, but uh, yeah, they will yeah, come when yeah. maybe so, it's so, a so, distraction. So I, I want to ask you about one other thing because I, I I broached baseball and and, and yeah. oh uh, but, please, but but, but 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 no, you you wrote actually something in the past week or so, I believe on a blog about yep. a baseball great by the name of Bob Gibson. Yep. And tell me, tell us what the site is. I, I have to tell you that I too, and there were two players that when I was younger that didn't play for the Yankees because we're both Yankee fans, mm -hmm. but I followed very closely. And that was Bob Gibson and it was Roberto Clemente. Oh, great. And Roberto great Clemente, because of his Puerto Rican roots and people don't know it, my roots are Puerto Rican and Cuban. But whenever he came to town, when, when I was living in Southern California, or when either of these two guys were coming to town, I wanted yeah. to go. I wanted to see Bob Gibson, who I thought was, you know, one of the great pitchers of the day. Dodgers had one, too, and Sandy Koufax. Koufax, yeah. Era. But I, I actually got to meet Bob Gibson when I lived oh, in Oh, really? Yeah, because he's originally oh, he's from, from Yeah. You know, That's he right. went to Creighton. He also played yep. basketball. What a lot of people don't know is for a year, he also played with the Harlem Globetrotters before he went into Major League Baseball. But exactly. anyway, tell, tell a little bit about your story, because I, he, he really is one of the greats of all time. Well, also you tell know, people my, they can go read your, 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 your story. So it's just G, my, you know, the letter G, Sheffer.com. Mm -hmm. And it's a little site blog I do. And it's spokesman, you know, and I have things on there about my time growing up. But Gibson, you know, I was just learning to love baseball, Mike. I was eight years old and watching him on a black and white TV against the Tigers in the first game of the 1968 World Series, where he struck out 17 Tigers, still the record in a game. And just who he was, to your point, this incredible athlete. And then the personality, which I subsequently discovered, he was quite a brusque yeah. person. He was intimidating. He would throw high and tight with some heat and then oh, yeah. buckle you your knees. couldn't get away with it today. <laughs> no, probably. no, and then buckle your knees with this curveball that was just astounding. So I was just, he died a year ago. In fact, a year ago, uh, maybe today. And just an extraordinary person. And he wrote a book about that game called yeah. Pitch by Pitch, which is a fantastic, I mean, he literally describes every pitch. Now that sounds kind of boring, yeah. But you, you want to see and get into the mind of a competitor. Yeah. Oh, he was a super competitor. You know, so anyway, that's what I wrote about. And yeah, so uh, I recommend that to, to, to our, um, terrific. our listeners. Thank you, Mike, uh, for that. It, it, I, I, it brought back great memories. He, he did soften later in life. Yes, um, he did. I even, yeah. I, I even hired him to help us have an event at the NCAA basketball finals where we did hmm. an event at the old Cardinal Stadium because the NCAAs were in St. Louis as they were getting ready to build the uh, but fantastic competitor and really one of baseball all-time great pitchers. He Mike, just for baseball fans out there, I'm going to prolong this. If you look at his record, he had something like I'm going to get the, by wrong by a few. 59 complete game shutouts. Yeah. I mean, a complete game today is astounding. You only have one or th two complete <laughs> exactly. games by any pitcher in a given year now. And by the way, we, let's just forget the the Yankees. You know, I'm just... <laughs> Wait until next year. Exactly. <laughs> anyway, now let's move on to our guest, Andrew Winston. 
This fall on the crux of the story, we're focusing on the intersection of business and society, and then a little more specifically on the role of communications, the role communications plays in unlocking solutions to some of the big challenges we all know about and face globally, such as climate change, racial inequities, economic disparity, misinformation, and unfortunately, continuing government paralysis. And our guest today, is Andrew Winston. He's a globally recognized expert on how to build companies that thrive by serving the world. He's a strategic advisor to many large global companies, was named by Thinkers 50 Radar Class of 2020 as a thinker to watch. Wow, that's 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 a great, great honor. And is the what a, author of one of the books that I've enjoyed most in over the years about this topic, Green to Gold. GE was a part of that book, our Eco-Imagination Initiative at the time. And The Big Pivot, I, I think I read, Andrew, that those two books have sold more than 150,000 copies combined. Yeah. And your latest book is with Paul Pullman, of course, formerly CEO of Unilever, and it's called Net Positive, How, to, How Courageous Companies Thrive by Giving More Than They Take. Your co-author, Paul Pullman, of course, is sort of the godfather of corporate sustainability in many ways, one of the most outspoken executives for sustainability. And of course, uh, during his decade at the helm of Unilever was the architect of Unilever's sustainable living plan. Just one thing before we get to Andrew, the Financial Times wrote, writes about net positive. It makes a more optimistic case for courageous, progressive companies and their leaders who can offer practical, positive ways of tackling environment, social and governance issues. And this article that I read in the FT, Andrew, says that they, uh, the book defines net positive as, quote, unquote, a business that improves well-being for everyone it impacts and at all scales. So, of course, there's much debate on the left and the right politically about this approach to business. Andrew, welcome to The Crux. Glad to be here. Thanks for having me. It's good to see you again. Well, Andrew, let's start with a foundational question. What is a net positive company? I think that definition that you heard in the Financial Times is kind of the official one. You know, the, the fundamental question, the simple one we're trying to ask is, is the world better off because your business is in it? Are you having a positive impact? And it's a complicated answer, right? But yes, we have defined it as improving the well-being, you know, as, as a company that, that does thrive and profits and grows by improving the well-being of everyone that they touch and that's employees and consumers and customers and suppliers and communities and at every scale you know what i mean by that is you know every product every service every factory every facility mm -hmm. every country you operate in that the goal really should be that there aren't you know some some huge negative impacts in one place and you're offsetting it somewhere else that mm -hmm. that the goal is that you're you're reaching a positive impact across multiple dimensions and it doesn't mean you get there all at once. It doesn't mean every minute of every day works that way, but it's it's the North Star. It's mm -hmm. where we need to go, really based on the scale of the challenges we're facing and, mm -hmm. and how fast we need to go now. Mm -hmm. Had we moved on climate the way we're starting to now, maybe 20, 30 years ago, it probably could have been a more gentle adjustment, <laughs> but I think that's that's past us. Yeah, we always at GE, when I was at GE, described it as a journey that we were on. And the pace of that journey, of course, is a subject to debate. Yeah. But it, at least if we were moving in the right direction, we felt like we were doing the right thing. So we weren't there. Certainly there aren't many companies today 
that you could describe, it seems, as net positive. And your book came out, you launched last week, and I've seen interviews with Paul Pullman saying not even Unilever at this point, Andrew, after uh, you know a decade of his determined efforts there is, is net positive. Are there companies today that meet the definition of net positive? You know, I think at the at the complete systemic level of the company, no. And that's part of what we talk about, that this is this is the flag we're we're planting. I would say while it is a journey, I you know, that that sometimes lets companies off the hook saying if we're mm-hmm. pointed in the right direction, because Good it's point. not quite enough, because what's guiding this is really this outside in view of the <laughs> world's thresholds, right? The science has gotten far better on what are the limits. What are the kind of biophysical limits and what are the minimums we want for people and and human thriving? And there's this, you know, as as Kate Raworth's book, The Donut Economics Mm -hmm. Model, which is just incredibly logical that we want to live in this kind of space within our physical limits and above the, the minimum standards. And so there's no company that's contributing at all levels. There are some that that are close in in certainly parts of their business or have made it pretty clear that everything they do, that's that's where they're headed. Often that's smaller, mid-sized or privately held players mm-hmm. like Patagonia, Interface Flooring, Ikea, Natura maybe in, in South America. There's, there's a handful, right? And, and then there's pieces of businesses, even the really big ones that are getting pretty close on this, are getting to true you know, carbon free or greatly reduced carbon emissions from say their energy use, the, the big tech giants have bought an awful lot of renewable energy. It's, it's you know, that's that's hard not to be impressed with. But we have a long way to go, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, we have a long way till the world is safe and people are thriving, everybody's thriving. And, the, numbers, and just to, the numbers aren't great, right? Yeah, right. And just to be clear, when you, and to reiterate, you mentioned carbon emissions and, and but the net positive concept is about all of your impacts on the world, right? It's not simply, yeah or only carbon emissions. Well, yeah, I mean, net zero is generally used in maybe waste, but generally about carbon, right? And, and right, climate right. change is our biggest existential threat. It's the one we need to focus really a tremendous amount of the world's attention on really for the rest of our lives. I mean, this is the fight of our species. It's, I, you know, I think I wrote in my last book, it's the final exam, you know, whether <laughs> we can come together. We're not doing so great on that. You know, there's, yeah. there's, we can talk about this, but there's certainly tremendous progress, but we're still not going fast enough. But we're broadening that. We're not talking about just zero, obviously, and going beyond that, and not just about physical footprint, but really about that that human flourishing as well. So things like- So that like, was purposeful. The, 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 yeah. the, you're, you're kind of juxtaposing net zero, and now mm. you're talking about net positive. That's right. So you purposely chose that in juxtaposition to well, and, and I mean, the not so subtle, but the kind of easy reference to money as well. I mean, Paul's a big believer. He ran a, a global, large public company. He was the CFO of Nestle, I think, before that and worked at P&G for years. So he's worked in the consumer products industry for 30 years. So he believes that the company still has to thrive. I think there's a really interesting debate for us all to have over the medium and long term about what does profit mean? And we and we question that in the book. We get to some of the really big questions towards the end of the book about the nature of profit, the nature of capitalism. I think we often get off in the wrong debate about this, where sustainability is somehow put against profit as if if you did one sustainable thing and it cost you a penny more, you're going under. 
I mean, I've had those conversations with executives as, as if there's no range between maximizing your profits this quarter mm -hmm. to the utmost and bankruptcy. Like there's no range right. between that <laughs> of choices you might make for the longer well, haul. And Paul, I think, really believes that your long term value will increase by going down this path. Obviously, it's complicated. I think there's choices we may all have to make that maybe don't always pay off in the long haul, but pay off in the sense that we survive, which seems like a pretty good payoff, right? Like that we, we build a thriving world and that's shared prosperity. You know, I don't think you can promise every company that every investment will always pay off. And frankly, only in sustainability are we ever asked to make that promise. Hmm. No one in business is ever told as a marketing head, tell me that every marketing campaign you do pays off in the three, six month, three year, five year, 10 year period, or you're fired. It just doesn't happen. And you see this on TV right now with ESG investing. I see it all the time, CNBC. They'll ask someone, can you get better returns? Find me a clip of someone saying, I have a new value-based or tech-based fund and someone going, prove to me it will always outperform. It just, it's only on this, right? It's yeah. only on this topic where that level is, <laughs> great point. is placed on it. Yeah, well, there's always that tension between near-term and long-term, but and, and I've always been interested from a valuation standpoint on companies that, we have financial statements that the theoretical underpinning for them is something called the going concern concept. Right. And the going concern concept essentially states the only reason you really put together these financials is because you think you're going to exist right. for yet another day as a point of comparison, as well okay. as to, to track what actually transpired in the last year. So if, yeah. if somebody was truly being aligned with the going concern concept that one learns in accounting theory, you would think that sustainability would be a natural <laughs> flow off of that. Right. Because no, that's a good point, right? Because the way we've interpreted going concern in this last kind of 40, 50 years of obsession with shareholder value is whether you can prove that there will be, you know, profits and short-term profits on an ongoing basis without sometimes questioning, well, are we strategically fit? To be a going concern if we're blockbuster you know mm -hmm. 12 13 14 years ago are we actually strategically fit do we have the people and the skills we need to be fit on a, as a going concern do we have the right skills do we have the right natural resources right are we in the right business if you're a pure oil and gas company are you a going concern in 20 30 years maybe but but a lot smaller unless you you shift to something <laughs> different and we're seeing that right in the companies that are making the earlier shifts away from sectors that just may not exist in the same way, not just for climate reasons, but just for technological advancement. I don't know if either of you own an EV, but it's just fundamentally a better car. I mean, it's it, on, on just kind of a macro level. Well, there is a question. Do you, do you probably know the answer to this question is where do most of the EVs exist today on the planet? That's a good, that's an interesting question. I would guess that China has the most. The People's the Republic most of, of China. And what's their major, what's their, I mean, way beyond anything else what is their major source of electricity oh it's coal but let's but there's been plenty of analyses on this that a electric vehicle is just thermodynamically superior meaning there's no there's no wasted heat think about an internal combustion engine how much energy goes to being mm -hmm. hot and so that conversion rate right to torque right to the axle is so much better that even if it's plugged into all coal it's better over the long run that that long run makes is longer if it's 100% coal. But for me, that discussion of, oh, it sometimes plugs into coal, it's like, well, yeah, no kidding. But 
if you make all of the vehicles EV and then start to reduce the grid, you've got a double, a double hit on emissions. Mm -hmm. And that's what's happening. Look, the, the, the largest auto companies, we can debate whether it's plugged into the right thing, but the largest auto companies have all now basically committed. They're getting out of internal combustion engines. They're pulling all their funding from it, all their investment and going entirely into EVs. So they clearly believe this is where we're headed. And, and meanwhile, the grid's also moving because the mm -hmm. renewables are cheaper. So I don't, you know, I don't really worry about that. I think China's percentage in coal will go down because it's just it's just more expensive it in every to, dimension. Economically, yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. So you worked on this book with with Paul Pullman, and he was, you know, really focused on sustainability. Just kind of curious as to what sustainability initiatives in your mind actually worked at Unilever and which ones might not have quite hit the mark. Yeah, we talk about that a lot. I mean, I think it's always hard for people to to look at their errors. I think Paul's a pretty self-honest guy, but there was a lot of successes, right? I mean, it's a big, complicated enterprise. It's in 180 countries. It touches a couple billion people a day. So, and this goes back to the question of is is a, is that company net positive? I mean, how could it be at that at that scale? I mean, just to jump ahead for a second, part of the core of the book is about systems change, about the kinds mm -hmm. of partnerships we need. So the answer to is somebody net positive is mostly you can't be yet for the reason we just talked about you want to plug into a grid that's all green for some of your operations to have a pure you know green electron business which is what google is now shooting for in the next eight ten years you need to change the grid you're gonna to have to work with local community you have to work with the government you know there's a whole set of systems things that need to happen right so they've had tremendous success i think in in areas that are more under their control. So that means, you know, reducing their own footprint, moving away from fossil fuels, they've done a lot of, a tremendous amount of work on the livelihoods of the people in their supply chain, right? Helping improve the job security of people working in tea factories, helping with best practices for tea farmers or palm oil farmers. And, and palm oil is an incredibly complicated story that I think is starting to be a win now after many years of failure from the, the big consumer products companies. They've done a lot on health and hygiene, I think, Probably mm -hmm. the most successful story out of brand is Lifebuoy Soap, which has been around since their founding in the 1870s. And they have been doing for years these hand washing campaigns, right? It's part of their brand image is they're going to help kids and communities in the developing world understand that if they just wash their hands more, they can avoid easily transmittable diseases that kill 5 million kids a, a year. And they've reached like a billion people with these campaigns with hand washing events the the data is there the metrics are there in in countries they've operated in and communities that the the incidence of all these diseases is down now you could say that sounds like philanthropy but the brand has actually also grown after 100 years of being stagnant it started growing double digit percentage which for a soap is torrid growth right i mean it's like <laughs> it's a soap and and it became one of their billion euro brands so it's a, it's kind of a win win in every dimension and it drove innovation they invented a version of it that would kill most of the germs for kids in 10 seconds instead of 30 because wow. kids you know and the amount of <laughs> and the amount of water available and exactly. it changes color in 10 seconds so the kids know okay i've killed i've killed the germs so there's there's those successes right and they've built this brand and it's made them really the most in-demand employer in the world in many ways in many many communities up there with the tech giants you know google apple the sexy companies now they also set a goal of 100% sustainable sourcing. That's really, really hard, and they haven't met it in every dimension. There's some really big sources that they have. Others, there weren't really definitions 
of how you get there. Palm oil has been this huge systemic problem that they're making progress mm -hmm. on. And I think they will admit that they've, you know, not succeeded or looked enough at plastics. That was probably a, a, a big miss in, in, in his 10 years. terms of the packaging years. for all of their products. Yeah, I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it, it, it's become one of the main issues for people, right? The whole straw in the turtle's nose a few years ago got people on straws and plastics, and it's become... And things got off the rails a little bit on this path because of COVID. We started wrapping everything in plastic and everybody take out bags and we went backwards for health reasons, mm -hmm. but it is a focus of consumers to reduce packaging. And so you're seeing really cool, I think, experiments now with Unilever sector as a whole on package free stores, you know, bins of things or the loop product where you get a box right. with products and then you can send it back and they clean the packaging. So I think packaging has been you know, one that that they take a lot of heat on and they probably should like all all big consumer products companies. It's a huge footprint. So look, I, I think there's there's things that haven't gone as they'd like, but by and large, the improvement in people's lives that they've that they've driven and their kind of consistent investment. Whenever I see a new kind of partnership on some topic, it's almost always Unilever as one of the founders. I mean, like consistently, <laughs> right. it's 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 almost shocking that they're one of, they're always like the first one there, you know, with a handful of other companies to start driving systems change. And I think that's the biggest success is just that mindset of we should be working with others in everything we do. So you, you mentioned earlier, Andrew, changing the nature of capitalism, at least examining it in this context of of net positive. And, and in the book and in some of the interviews, Pullman, he's very blunt about the current nature of capitalism. He talks about, he's not impressed by net zero emission goals. He calls political donations of some companies corrupt, tells them to pay their taxes, including my former company, GE, and uh, says that they should develop a quote unquote sense of shame, uh, CEOs about their high pay. And, you know, I was reading just this week in the Washington Post, an article about companies with poor environmental records, spills, air pollution, et cetera, the CEOs getting bonuses from their boards and from their shareholders for environmental performance around things like carbon emission reduction goals, yeah. despite poor record <laughs> in other areas. So what can be done? We've talked about the product end of things. What about the yeah. governance and the operation of these companies? What should we be thinking about in that area? Yeah, so we have a chapter called, you know, about the elephants in the room, and it's late in the book, and it's actually been the one we've gotten the most early attention from people, like other CEOs have written mm -hmm. Paul and me and said, yeah, no one's talked about this, or no one's really put it on, on the page and just said flat out, we say CEOs, executives make too much money. Right. We say companies should be paying taxes and should be proud of it, right? This is, we've we've hit, I think, the extremes of the kind of neoliberal model, right? The Milton Friedman view of the world for the last 50 years that the only point of a company is to maximize. And if you do that, then you're gonna do everything you can to not pay anything to anyone. And and it really it really takes you away as a company from you know actually being a contributor to the society you're operating in. And I'll be honest, like Amazon is one that's bothered me for years in that their entire business model early on relied on the roads, right? Like you could, their, their, their ability to be e-tail relied on their being infrastructure and they have worked to never pay taxes. And there's just something wrong about that. And I understand that all the capital gains things we do and all the ways we encourage companies, but 
there's work right now at the OECD and there's, you know, the US has gotten behind this to have some kind of global minimum tax, which will reduce that movement of capital to the Cayman Islands or Monaco or wherever it's going. The numbers on that are shocking. It's trillions and trillions of dollars. It's the kind of money we need to build our infrastructure to tackle climate. The money's out there. Yeah. And this isn't some grab for every, you know, the, the debate in the US is so extreme on this, right? I mean, my, you know, when my dad came out of college, the highest tax rate was 80 to 90% on the mm -hmm. over million. No one's talking about that. Like if, if <laughs> someone like Bernie Sanders says, oh, the tax rate should go from 36 to 39, they scream socialism and, you know, the economy's going to die. And like, we kind of lost our way, right? That there's a certain amount that, and, and, that the government needs to support a certain level of life for everybody and sure. a certain and, level of welfare. And um, who knew that South Dakota was a tax haven? I know. I mean, it, these weird things we're finding out. So look, there's things like that. There's there's pay. There's corruption issues. I mean, we we're not the only ones to say this, but the U.S. we have there's two kinds of corruption really. There's the the money under the table kind, which you see a mm -hmm. lot in Africa, you know, in ports and things. And then there's the above board legalized corruption, where America is probably the the best example, right? The amount of money you can pour into politicians' pockets and into campaigns is shocking and it's, it's extraordinary and, and it means yeah. that business does own the agenda and so that's part of our push for what we call net positive advocacy if we're gonna if we're gonna have that influence let's use it to drive the kind of change we need look these things are not easy i think yeah. you know for companies and countries to get behind things like a minimum level global tax is one aspect i think to get behind much more governance structure from the boards so they have oversight more i think you know stepping back and really questioning how much we move to option-based, you know, stock option-based, you know, salaries, yeah. and how much we started to move capital and companies towards stock buybacks, which is that circle, right? If you give everybody right. options, the CEO is going to say, hey, why don't we buy back stock, right? Which is fundamentally saying to the world, I don't have a better idea what to do with this. To do with my money. To with the capital. Right. Um, you, you know, re related to that, I'm, I'm actually surprised that more companies in this space haven't felt the pressure to align pay with performance on ESG goals, yeah. not just on stock performance or some measure of ROI or earnings. And, and I was surprised, I, I currently am an executive at Enbridge, which is in the pipeline business. But in what was interesting is when we announced last year that we were aligning our ESG goals in such a way that executive and employee performance would be in part based off of how we performed against ESG goals, there was a lot of talk and a lot of interesting noise because not very many companies apparently are doing this. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's, it's the, it's one area in the book where Paul and I differ a little bit. And because he's kind of a believer, at least I think for the senior, for the senior people, mm -hmm. that if you have to pay them to do something, it's not really deeply in the culture. If you have to, like, he kind of believes right. like a factory head who had zero accidents, zero deaths, you know, you hit your safety targets. Why are we rewarding you for that? Like that should be, that should be a given. And the re and he's not saying don't reward. He's saying the reward comes in. You did your job well, you're, you're up for promotion. Right. You maybe get a higher salary, right? But it's not a bonus right. based on you hit those targets. I, I, I don't think he's necessarily wrong in terms of the motivation yeah. at the very senior levels, but you know, in a company with tens of thousands of people at all levels, 
I think the that intrinsic motivation of I did a good job and this helps me in my career and the extrinsic of like, yeah. let's make it a percentage of the bonus so you know it's important to the organization. I think both are important yeah. and, and it really can depend on the kind of person. You're seeing more of companies announcing now really recently as a way to show their commitment that they are tying it. And actually after Paul left, the board did put a bunch of connections from the US Sustainable Living, the Unilever Sustainable Living Plan to executive comp. It was partly like, well, Paul's leaving. We want to ensure it's it's yeah. part of every, you know, that people keep going, right? I mean, you can say culturally that once a leader leaves, they've left this, you know, the clock, the clock building in the Jim Collins and Porus terms, but you don't know. So I think they ended up moving to bringing it pretty heavily into the compensation. And I think we're going to see more and more of that because it just says to the world, this is a priority. If you don't have it there, then it's, then I think often it is just talk. If they don't see it in their pay or in who gets promoted and who advances, then it's how important is it? Exactly. Yeah. Well, one of the one of the trend lines we're seeing is kind of new style companies coming out of some of the transitions around sustainability. And, and by the way, I used to work in the food industry. We also provided ingredients to both food and personal care products companies. And at one point, the company I was with was Cargill, which was Unilever's largest ingredient supplier, and we're the ones working on the palm oil issue that you mentioned. But your book, your book asserts that all the new value creation recently in the food industry is coming from new entrants like Oatly and Beyond Meat. One, why is that? And is it just that they're new companies meeting new customer or consumer demands? Or is it simply a case of new entrants versus mature players? Because not all of us are going to eat beyond meat, not all of us are going to consume, you know, oatly milk-like products. You know, there's a lot of things coming together. I mean, I, I worked for a while for one of the, the flavors and fragrance companies, you know, there's kind of four or five that dominate that. And at one of the meetings, they showed a chart of the fastest growing, you know, it wasn't just, you know, there was some personal care, but it was basically food related, you know, consumer products. And the fastest growing, like 50, were almost all sustainability related. And, and I think, there's a lot going on, right? As you said, like new entrants, of course they grow faster than Cargill. It's a size thing, right? The fastest growing. Although let's just say Apple and Amazon have managed to be incredibly fast growing and huge for a shocking <laughs> amount of time. time yeah. But there's clearly a movement to smaller footprint products. There's a greater understanding in the younger you know, consumers, the millennials down, millennials, Gen Z. That's what you see these things like, you know, meatless Mondays, right? Vegan till six, like there's these, People saying, I don't have to go all in, but I can reduce my impacts and try to improve my health. So I think you're seeing this alternative meat, alternative milks. It's just, it's just a huge market now. And there's so much creativity going on. Uh, you know, I'm trying out different ones at home. I've been a vegetarian for years, but I don't always want soy necessarily. I don't always, you know, you don't want a lot of sugar added. Like, and there's people coming up with really cool products with, you know, that are, that have a mix of, of ingredients that are all natural. And, and there's just, there's a larger issue that is a transparency based one. That's the clean label movement that the CPG world has been kind of swept up in, in recent years where people want to know what's in everything. They want to look at the label and understand and have it be understandable ingredients and fewer ingredients. And I haven't really met anybody in that industry who thinks that's going away. That thinks we're going to go back to, yes, put really long chemical word names <laughs> in my food. There's, there's just far more transparency. And, and you want to know when you're looking at it 
and companies are proudly saying like here's Breyer's ice cream or something with five ingredients right <laughs> like they're it's kind of nice you're, you're picking up a snack bar and there's two ingredients right it's like dates and nuts or something like that right this is this is something people really want so i think it's it's just satisfying a a major growing need but it is tied to our our larger problems people know there's a climate connection to meat and and being vegetarian they there's many 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 people who get that so uh, andrew i, I want to sort of jump ahead here to the communicators side yeah. of this you know there are people that make arguments against this kind of capitalism you know they call it woke capitalism or right. something like that and and it's obviously driven by political considerations largely in my view not facts so a lot of communicators over the past 18 months, let's say, given some of the things going on economically and socially, their responsibilities have changed at these yeah. big companies. They've taken over sustainability. They've taken over foundation and giving, which are uh, often tied to sustainability and, and what we used to call corporate, corporate social responsibility programs. So I'd like to ask, what would you say to these executives, these people that lead the communications teams? the giving programs, and often the sustainability programs, what needs to change in the way we talk about this subject, about sustainability and stakeholder capitalism? Well, first, I'll just say that I think the change in what's expected of companies, what they're expected to talk about in the last couple of years has been more than I've seen in the 20 years that I've been in this. And, I, and there's a lot of reasons that came to be you know, the pandemic left us all at home watching mm -hmm. TV. So the George Floyd murder got even bigger. And there's just these tipping points that are hard to predict, right? And the mega trends that I've been tracking for years and telling companies, hey, climate is coming, transparency is coming, supply chain pressure. They're now moving from seemingly theoretical to very, very real, right? I mean, it is really hard to stand up and say climate change isn't happening. It, it, it's you look like an idiot. And and it's just a clear, I mean, the numbers are clear. I just saw the data yesterday on like California fires, you know, these fire firemen yes. saying, oh, 100,000 acre fire was, would be your, the biggest of your lifetime. We're fighting million acre fires. Now, you know, we're fighting 500,000 acre fires at once. So there's just the scale of what's happening, I think is really moved people. And there's just been this much greater awareness of the differential in, in treatment. Look at the COVID outcomes for mm -hmm. Hispanic and black community versus versus white. I mean, there's just been this greater transparency, right? But for me, the, the fundamental thing in business is that I've been fighting for 20 years is, is, as I referred to it earlier, is to stop talking about sustainability like it's it's something that's totally different from business. And it's and that it's a, a strategy that is based in some kind of communist takeover of the world <laughs> like I don't, I, I don't i don't totally get sometimes the defensiveness about it there are many trends that take business whether it's going to be okay everybody needs to understand mobile and digital technology in this business to move forward now you know everybody needs to understand logistics better like sustainability is a part of everything we do in business and i think just talk about it in that way this is a a fundamentally generally better way of doing business that takes into account the systems you're in takes into account the longer term prepares you better and whether you get into the calling it different kinds of capitalism or not mm -hmm. i think is a sometimes a semantic and academic debate i mean i people will argue with me well i care i care about free markets i'm like free markets are great but they to be free they have to be priced you have to actually have things that are priced that you can trade in a market and 
you know, right now, most of the impacts on the world of what you do are not priced. And so it's, it's a failed tool. It's, yeah. it's a tool, but we can make it better. Right. Yeah. And I think stake stakeholder capitalism is a way of just bringing us back from this obsession with one stakeholder and one number, which nobody would ever do in any aspect of their lives. They would never measure their health on just my cholesterol number. That's all I need to know. And I'll know whether I am a happy, healthy, content person, right? right? Or my kids' grades tell me everything I need to know about whether we're all happy as a family. It's just, it's ludicrous. And a company is way too complicated to go by one. It's just so, it's so appealing, right? It's been yeah. appealing. Yes. To go, I just have to, I just have to hit yeah. one metric. Yeah. But that's just crazy, right? I mean, but we way, these- in some ways, what you're saying too, though, also underscores, I think, what part of the problem is, is that part of it is this idea of how we're going to transition from today's state to future state is complex. Yeah. You know, it requires different skills. It requires looking at the world differently. And, you know, as sometimes I think as Americans, we think we're going to press a button <laughs> and we'll magically jump cut from the world we're in today to where we want to be, you know, in the near future. And I mean, even things like if, if we're going to have electricity at, at scale that depends on renewables, there's a lot of infrastructure work that needs to be done. Right. And, and, and yet, even when we take it to the political level, you know, Joe Biden has a lot, some of these things in his infrastructure bill that are trying to get us on a glide path to a, a more environmentally sound economy. And yet you can't even get the votes in the Democratic caucus. You got the votes of 96% of them. Let's, let's, let's <laughs> yeah, be yeah, serious. No, no, that's right. That's right. That's right. No, no, and, I, and right. Let's talk about that one for an instant. It's amazing yeah. to me. This is something about the way we cover this. It's, it's, a, it's a communication issue. The way we talk about yes. this in the media is frankly so screwed up because think about the coverage that's being given to the difference between people who want to, and by the way, the spending 3.5 trillion is, is also really weird communications. No one talks about 10 years of spending at once. Like it's yeah. a 350 billion a year bill, which as a That's part been, of our government, yeah. right. is it's actually a not very fight. big, but let's say that, let's say you're having this debate between two who want to spend far less, only one, only 1.5 trillion to 3.5. No one's covering the entire half in Washington who want to spend zero on climate, who want to do nothing about it, who want, yeah. you know, we're debating between the range of doing something about right. climate, about child care that allows people to go back to work, about elder care. So, you know, people on Medicare, Medicare can get hearing aids. Like there's an entire half that is, wants zero of that, right? So the coverage is always like this huge battle in the Democratic Party, I'm like, what about the fact that they're agreeing that something needs to be done? I saw Joe Manchin on TV saying, yeah, "Yeah, I think companies can pay more tax. I think wealthy people can pay more tax. That's like radical for the the right. (laughs) And and they're acting like, yes, he's a pain in the ass. He's he's been elected in a place where it's 70%, 75% voted for Trump. He knows something we don't about how to get elected in that place. But I do believe he and Sinema are putting themselves in their own interest above the greater good in many ways and, and, and far and far too much. Like, come on, guys, like sit down and compromise. 96% of your peers want to do this. Just get this done. Right. And, yeah. and for climate, oh, especially we're out of time. Yeah. But, it's, it, but there's a lot of comms in this and the way media covers it that I, I don't know how we break out of this and get back to yeah. a, a kind of 
more natural approach to discussing these issues and giving a kind of fairness to what's actually happening. Well, you know, Andrew, I completely agree with what you just said, just from a communication standpoint, and even for the Democrats, they sort of lost the narrative around a reconciliation bill versus what's actually in the bill. That is most of which is wildly popular with Americans. It's all wildly, it's almost all wildly popular. <laughs> right, so, so that's what I wanna ask you last question, Andrew, on this is, you know, and we've talked in the past about Ecomagination, an initiative at GE that we launched in 2005 yeah. around making our technology more green. And we did use that word. And, you know, our CEO, Jeff Immelt, was one of the first to sort of lead in this area and actually called when we launched it for a higher price on carbon and some other things, and then was part of a coalition with government and some senators yes. to actually get some legislation passed in that area. Oh, and, yeah. looking, and looking back, Andrew, Jeff will now say the words we used were wrong. We, we made, yeah. you know, that he uses the word precious to describe some of the conversation around at the time. Yeah, I mean, the, that was what the Climate Action Partnership, right? That right, was, exactly. And yeah. they got burned. Yeah. A bunch of CEOs got burned and felt like they didn't want to come back to try again. But like, That's right. the world evolves. I, look, even back then, I thought some of Obama's advisors were, they didn't even get it, really. I mean, they were like, to them, climate action was, how do we answer some of our environmentalist NGO part of our base? It wasn't, mm -hmm. you could have presented, as as Biden has done cl clearly throughout the campaign, as a job, you know, economic growth package. Like, these are the growth industries of the future. I, I saw Bill Clinton give a speech years ago about this that said, to have economic growth, you need some sector. He had a really interesting big picture view. In the 90s, he was lucky. It was the internet, right? He was there for the growth of the exactly. internet. And he said, you know, years ago now, like the green or clean tech, whatever, that's the next wave, right? And I, yeah. I mean, can anybody doubt that now? Again, the entire auto industry is heading that way. All of energy, built efficiency technologies. There's so much brewing that this is a jobs and, and resilience plan and ability for our country to compete. I mean, it is so weird to me that I've had you know, people come up to me for years say, well, why should we do stuff on climate when China doesn't? I'm like, China's doing so much more than we are. <laughs> exactly. They, they That's created right. an, a solar and wind industry in like five or six years from basically zero to being the biggest providers. The reason companies like Solyndra went under, they got outcompeted, right? Because they were manufacturers. Where we, where we do well is the installers, the, the, you know, the, the, the kind of part of that value chain, we do really well. And, you know, China found a way to produce cheaper, like they did in apparel, electronics, like many places. And they're building the biggest industry in the world on this stuff. And they yeah. have 20,000 miles, I think, of high-speed rail. We have zero. Like, it's, it's, it's a joke, right? They're positioning themselves better for the future. And I think we don't talk about it in that way well enough, right? We do talk about saving the planet. And I do think that matters to a lot of people. But the, I always say the planet will be fine. Like the yeah. planet's fine with or without us. This is whether we thrive and we're heading towards a place where we really don't. And, and yeah. I, I don't know how else we convince people that yeah. this is in our interest. Yeah, well, and in, in some frame, I mean, it, it gets into sort of a political discussion around command economies, you know, versus the rest of us muddling along. 
<laughs> you know, as, 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 as we have debates in the Senate and the House. Yeah. But well, it's interesting that you mentioned President Clinton and, and, and the discussion around tech, because I'd love for you as sort of a, a closing shot here to maybe offer up some advice. You know, we have social network and tech companies such as Facebook, who today are really in the crosshairs about, you know, their role in either catalyzing or worsening social and political problems using kind of that net positive buys or approach what advice might you give to facebook today yeah look facebook is a really complicated conversation i actually i think they're really the most dangerous company in the world right now i think the evidence is pretty clear i mean from things that most people haven't followed like Facebook has been directly implicated in like genocides in Myanmar and like, because mm -hmm. all of a sudden people went from zero social media to 90% of the country and they're basically all using Facebook and it's a misinformation battle. And the question is, what's worse, the misinformation writers and providers or the people that make an algorithm so that that's what pops to the top because what you click the most of is what outrages you. So how can they possibly be positive influence on the world you know, even if they're providing jobs, great. But there's a certain percentage of the people that have to look through the most awful, filthy misinformation and 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 that affects their well-being. You know, they're connecting people, but then connecting them with the wrong information and making them angry and, and divisive. I, I think they're incredibly damaging right now. And so, I, I mean, I don't know what else to say, but I am quite confident the algorithms could be better. They could move towards truth. There could be higher rankings for sources that they know are based in fact in journalism and not just what gets the most clicks, right? There's been debates about, do we take the like button off thing? I know there's been debates about this. If you saw the Netflix show this last year, the social, social dilemma or the social, mm -hmm. yeah, the social dilemma. Yes. Frankly, it was terrifying because all, a lot of the big founders in this sector don't let their own kids use these technologies <laughs> much. That tells you something, right? And so I, I think, we should just expect better, right? Again, this goes back to my question earlier about, do I know that Facebook will be more profitable if it does a better algorithm? No, but if it's less, is that the end of the world? I mean, does he go from being the third richest person in history to the fifth? I mean, like what, what are we talking about here? And I just, I just think on, on this front, it's, it is an obsession with like, we should do whatever we want, go fast and break things. Was there, you know, was the tech motto? Well, you broke things. Right? You're breaking our ability to even know what's true. And I, I don't know how else you can think about being that positive without taking on. And let me just close by saying one of the core models and ideas in the book of a net positive company is ownership. I should have said this earlier, but taking ownership of your impacts in the broadest way. And for Facebook, that kind of we have a circle model, you know, five, six levels, that kind of fifth, sixth level out is democracy, is truth, is fact. And how many companies can say they actually have a huge influence on something that large? And they do more than maybe anybody in the world. So do they take ownership for that? And so far they don't, right? When Zuckerberg shows up at Congress, does he take ownership for that impact? No. And I just think we should be expecting better from each other as humans and as businesses. And I do think eventually it will hurt them. Like how many people want to go work there, the best and brightest in talent in, in tech, if that's what the place is accomplishing, I think it will hurt them. That but we don't have road. time yeah to wait for that they they should be pushed to do the right thing because you know we all want it as consumers i just don't use them i wish more people did the same but it's hard right well 
Well said, Andrew. And and you can just from that answer <laughs> why this book is so good. It's blunt, it's clear-headed, and it's a good guide, a blueprint for companies and communicators as well on how to be thinking about where we're going to go over the next decade at least. The book is with Paul Pullman and Andrew Winston, Net Positive, How Courageous Companies Thrive by Giving More Than They Take. Andrew, thanks for being on The Crux. Thank you, Andrew. Thanks so much. Great conversation. Thanks for listening to The Crux, and make sure to listen for our next episode. Follow us at The Crux on Facebook and on Twitter, and you can find our episodes on SoundCloud and on our website, thecruxpodcast.org.